Well, good morning. It's really good to be back with you all. I was able to spend some time uh, traversing the Scottish Highlands, which was uh, really fun. Uh, I got a little cold on my way back, so if I sound funny, it's because I can't really hear myself, which is okay sometimes, right? <laughs> like, um, you know, I was able to preach on this text a few weeks ago in the alternative service. And as I was wrestling with it, it was the weekend leading into um, the time when Hamas had kidnapped and murdered um, many Jewish folks, and there was the initial movement of retaliation. And I ended up doing something that I, I don't do very often, which is what many of you know, that 90% of the time I don't write out my sermons. And there's a lot of reasons for this. One of them is a conscious choice in view of how my brain works. For in so many ways, as I grew up, I was tutored to be someone other than I was. I remember being in fifth grade, and we had to do this thing where you would do a research project, you had to write everything out on note cards, but you like couldn't exactly quote, but you were supposed to write it out in these things in certain ways. And, and, and I didn't understand the assignment very well. It just didn't fit for me, because in so many ways, I've always been more of a lyricist and an intuitive. It's the way I live. When I was a classical pianist, that's how I loved to play. I would learn the notes on the page, but I loved moving with the music and experiencing it more like a dance. Of course, I have learned the scales, and I know the rudiments of sentence structure, and yet I find the magic when I lose myself in the music. With preaching, I often feel like that too. I get to take these threads of learning and reflection and prayer and discernment, knowing this community, what we're wrestling with, and then being in the space where even as you're not speaking verbally, I get to take what's been bubbling up in me and prayer, prayerfully, hopefully, dance with you and with the spirit in terms of what I actually say on a, a Sunday morning. It's a way of radical presence and this, uh, affirming the space that's birthed between us. And yet I know that it's also more than this too. In many ways, I struggle to wrestle to find language that is authentic. In the midst of a community in place, to put on ink and paper what I actually think and believe. And in the midst of this time, coming now into Reformation Sunday, in a world in which indeed violence hasn't lessened but has only increased, I found myself putting my fingers to the keyboard because I was and am at a loss for words. I find I don't have the words to know how to speak about violence in Israel and Palestine, let alone the other places of violence in our world and in our own lives. And I pray and I plead with God that we as a people, that we would change direction. I'm not alone in this, am I? In turning to Jonah then, and reading these chapters in the midst of our world, 
I was so struck by how it connects and echoes of current events, whether it be within our own borders, in view of natural disasters, the war with Ukraine and Russia or Palestine and Israel. So there's so many places that are connected. And we have this absolute surety at times as people that we are right, that we know the truth, that we have the answers. And in this space, encounter this text from Jonah. Jonah is one of the minor prophets, and I'll give a little overview of it before I go further. In the Hebrew Bible, it's placed fifth in the text. Jonah is referenced in 2 Kings 14 as the one who prophesied the northern kingdom during the time of King Jeroboam II in the mid-eighth century before the Common Era. This text of Jonah features centrally in the Jewish faith. It is read on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The text itself speaks of Jonah the prophet going to the people who are named in Nineveh, who are the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were the enemies of the Jewish people. We see echoes between the first part of the text in chapter 1, when God comes to Jonah and says, go and prophesy to the people in Nineveh. And then again, in what was read for us by Steve in chapter 3, that same command is issued, go and prophesy to them. Then the texts echo as you go through chapter 1 and chapter 3, where you see the ship's captain of the boat during the midst of the storm. The storm which happens when, what, just let me tell you, what happens is God says go, Jonah's like, I'll go in another direction because God won't figure that out, and then gets on a boat, and there's a huge storm, and Jonah's just chilling and sleeping in the hull of the boat, and is like, whatever, God will never figure it out. And then everyone's like, what's happening? Pray to your gods, figure it out. And they finally question Jonah. And when they do, they realize, Jonah, like, you're making God real mad here. <laughs> this is not going well. So they end up saying, okay, you need to get off the boat. We, we love you, man, but uh, this isn't going well. So he does. He gets swallowed up in the belly of the whale, experiences a total life transformation, if you've read Jonah before, you will realize that he doesn't really, but he's in the belly of a whale, three nights, three days, and then he gets spit up on dry land. And we come then into chapter three, where we have the same echo that happens as God says, okay, now, this time, <laughs> let me remind you of the assignment. You need to go and you need to prophesy to the folks there. Again, it's the folks who aren't following Yahweh God who are the ones who actually open up and apprehend who God is. In this case, it's the king. And he asks and commands all of the people, including all of the animals and everything, to render their clothes, to repent of the ways that they have, have lived. And when they do this, Jonah, of course, is like, amen, I'm so glad my sworn enemies repented. That also does not happen. In fact, Jonah is really mad. He wanted to see them destroyed in many ways. And so as the, as the book ends, Jonah is outside the city, a fig tree grows at God's gracious command, and then it withers overnight, and Jonah's mad at that, and, and God's like, why are you mad at everything all the time? And he asks him, 
you know, would not my grace and mercy extend to all of these people? You're upset about this, but would you not be upset if all these people were to have been destroyed? So that's the overview of the text. Sometimes, like Jonah, God, perhaps God actually calls us to go to a people that we have been taught to hate or revile. As he had, and we're like, nope, they don't deserve the equal humanity and the beauty of the grace that I have known. I'd rather they actually die and perish, or like at least get some just rewards, right? And so we run. And the consequences are often as deadly as the conditions of the sailor on the boat with Jonah. However, too infrequently as people do we dump that person over the side so that they can go in the water, get swallowed by a whale, and get reborn. Indeed, we often struggle with the honest moral clarity for us on the boat and in our societies and in our companies, in these moments of storm to say, hey, this isn't okay. We love you, but we need you to get off the boat right now because it's not, it's not going okay. What if we as a people held these kind of boundaries with abusers in our families, our schools, our churches, our politics? For here, in the belly of the whale, Jonah has an opportunity to embrace the dark and be reborn in love. But at first, he doesn't. No, instead, he carries forward in his own self-righteous certainty. Fine, God, I'll go there just to prove to them how very wrong they are. And so he goes there. And the thing about the goodness of the God of love is that it's compelling on its own. God doesn't need crusades or witch hunts or moral police or legislation against the rights of others, which I would argue are all against the God of love anyway. No, when Jonah speaks, perhaps it is the beauty of the word of truth therein that compels them, and they realize there's another way to live, and they do it. The people choose life. And yet Jonah, as I've said, he wasn't happy about it. He wanted them to burn. He hated, even as he professed the words of God. And that Yahweh, the God who is merciful and just and kind, he professed he believed in this God and that this was his lens for seeing the world. And how much can this be true in our world and in our lives? Whether it be the refusals to take seriously the histories of atrocities in our own land, the murder and dehumanizations of black persons, the crusades, the violence in our own homes, how much of this is rooted in a fundamental misapprehension of who God is in the midst of our own brokenness, and still the gospel keeps calling to all of us. I know you've been hurt. I know you weren't loved or seen. But come home and find that you are loved and that there is peace. I preach this again and again. Not because I just want you to feel wonderful, which like I actually do. <laughs> you are loved. Come home. Jesus loves you. Take a breath. It's good. You are loved by God. But I preach this because I am convinced 
That not only is this the good news, but that it's only when we know this good news and when we turn toward it, knowing we are truly loved and home, that we can begin to truly love our neighbors as ourselves. It is only when we apprehend the radical love and grace of the one who made and fashioned us all in the image of God that we can turn to one another with the radical love that is necessary in our world. This is a love, this love of God, that sees all of us, every one of us, as equally made in God's image. It is a love that both names the injustice and the violence that made possible the situation in Israel and Palestine, while also demanding the honoring and dignity of the dignity of all humans and the work of God's justice and shalom to make it so. This is a love that helps us as the church and as individuals therein to turn and to change direction. That's what it means to repent, right? Literally, it's to turn, to change direction. Anytime we come, become self-righteous or moralizing against others, and instead, we become then a people of God who are for life and for humanity and for love and for rights because we are for and of a kingdom, not of this world. This is a church that doesn't legislate against people but stands with them. It is a church that weeps for the violence and the terror done to the sacred children of God throughout our world. This is a church that says no in the face of violence and demands something different of ourselves and of our world. This is a church and a people who each of us, we change direction again and again. We change in our own selves as we repent and in so doing, we turn to the deepest truth that this is a God of love and of mercy who is for all of us in God's grace. And in so doing, we turn to one another. And then, as we do this, as a church, as we keep turning and turning back again to this God of love and changing direction, we are able to love. This is the work this is our yes. Will we keep changing direction? Will we keep turning? Noticing when we've turned away and letting grace turn us back again. It's changing direction and going home, ceasing to run away from the God of love who calls to each of us. And this, my friends, is what Reformation is about. Reformation, fundamentally, is not just a historical moment in time. Reformation is the work of God's spirit throughout time. Reformation is that way of being reborn, to find our way anew, to being changed, to being just moved within ourselves by the spirit to recognize where we have gone wrong. It was back in the 16th century, and many of you know this story, right? That God's spirit was bubbling up anew in the world. 
Through the printing press, people were being able to read in ways that hadn't been accessible to the average person throughout time. And God's spirit was bubbling. And there was a man named Martin Luther who had spent a lifetime believing that grace was not for him. And maybe if he worked just a little bit harder, God would not hate him. Until one day, on a road, he encounters God in a new way. He has a moment that changes him forever, and he saw and experienced grace in his own bones for the first time. It was through this work of the Spirit that reformation took place not only in one person, but it was a reformation that called to the whole church. You've heard the story about he, how he nailed his theses on the door in 1517. He said, here I stand, I can do no other. And this is the same reformation call that congregationalists have affirmed, that there is always more light and truth to break forth from God's holy word, that God's spirit is always reforming, including us, and that the work of God's church being transformed begins within us as well. And so on this Reformation Sunday, it is my prayer that you and that we, that we heed and hear this call of love and grace to again change direction, to come home, to remember our true north and the good news of faith in our world that we are loved and that grace and life and dignity and justice, they're all here in this kingdom coming that we pray for and we long for. So let us again say yes to this God of reformation promise, to the God of love, to one another, to our truest selves, to our neighbors. Let us keep changing direction and turn our faces back to love as it heals and empowers us to live and to believe and to work toward another world. Indeed, might more light and truth break forth. Might we have the courage, the humility, and the wisdom and discernment to apprehend it and might your church, God, know the Reformation power. Might we change direction. Might we know your grace and love. May this be true in me. May it be true in us. May it be true in our world. That indeed God's peace and justice and grace and love would make this world a home where life is possible for everyone. Let's pray. God, you know, sometimes, like Jonah, we have heard your still small or sometimes resoundingly loud voice call to us to go to places, to people, to spaces, that perhaps we harbor anger or hatred, perhaps we don't understand, perhaps any number of things. 
God, in this calling, might we hear it as fundamentally a calling of grace to ourselves. Grace that we can know the truth that you are merciful and kind and loving. And we do indeed, God, pray that your kingdom would come. We pray for all those who suffer throughout our world this day. And we give you thanks for the grace and love we know in Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.